you today on the topic of love, which is the key to everything. And I believe it's the hallmark, the hallmark of a life of faith. God is love. And as sons and daughters of God, to be characterized by love is living proof that we are His children. And the verse that I'm coming to, and I'll read it in a moment, is, is where we're heading. And that is that Jesus said, by, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for the other. So let's pick it up. John chapter 13. We're going to read from ver verse 31 through to verse 35. When you have time later on today, read the whole chapter. And at this particular point, Judas has left, the betrayer has gone, and now with him out of the way, the mood changes and Jesus speaks more intimately than ever before in his final address, his final discourse to his disciples in the upper room just hours before he's to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. So verse 31. So when he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come, so now I say to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By, the, by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, in today's world, the distinguishing marks of what it means to be a believer in today's world seem to be eroded. I'm not here to criticize or to bring any, anybody into bondage, but you know, so often as we observe the lives of Christians and non-Christians, very often there's not a lot of difference. And yet we need that difference. I also notice today that words are increasingly insufficient. It's not enough for us to say, hey guys, we have the truth. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, which is true. They're going to say, well, if you got the truth, let's see it. And how will they see it? What is that distinguishing feature, that characteristic difference between somebody who knows God and somebody who doesn't? What is that that one thing that marks us out as different, as belonging to Jesus, in such a way that the hallmark of our faith is distinguishable, it's noticeable, so that even our enemies say, look at the difference. 
Jesus says that it's love. And in particular, a new commandment. And uh, he, he said, this is it. Love one another as I have loved you. And they were going to need this. Not long after this, even Peter has fallen away, denying Jesus three times publicly. And they all scattered. They all left him. What was going to bring them back together? What was going to build them together? Of course, it would be the knowledge that the crucifixion was not the end. Resurrection follows. But even beyond that, it wasn't even the resurrected life of Jesus living on this planet. It was after he ascended to heaven and sent forth his Holy Spirit. And the love of God was poured out into their hearts. And for us today also, it's the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that makes a difference. The word love is very common in John's gospel. It's not surprising because he is the great apostle of love. But in the first 12 verses, first, verse 12 chapters rather, the word love only appears 12 times on average once per chapter. But now, from here onwards, from verse 13 through to verse 21, it's used 44 times. It's as if that Jesus sets the tone, not just for the last discourse with his disciples as he focuses on what is of supreme importance, the highest revelation of all, the revelation of the love of God in Christ, not just that he focuses on it in this discourse, but John gets a hold of it and he never stops talking about it. You read his epistles, it's all about love. And one man at least got the message. And what would happen today if we catch this message that the greatest distinguishing feature, the key of all things, is this revelation and understanding of love? Now it says, this is a new commandment. And we know it's, it's not new in the sense that it didn't exist before. Because God is love. Everything that he does, he does in love and an expression of love. And God spoke about love in Leviticus chapter 19, for example, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. For you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When Jesus was asked concerning the greatest commandments, he said they're all summarized in, in this commandment. And the second one is very similar to, the, to it. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So love is not new. Not new in time. It's been important to God's people from the very beginning. So this word new means new in experience. Fresh. It's the opposite of being worn out. Something that is old and worn out, this word new means made fresh again. New in experience. And we find a new revelation and a new experience of God's love in Christ. Love takes on a new meaning and a new power through the death of Jesus. 
In John chapter 15 and verse 13, we read a very clear expression of this newness, this new meaning. John 15 verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And when Jesus laid down his life, it was not just doing a favor for his friends, it was a demonstration of God's infinite love for a world lost and in sin. Maybe somebody would die for a good person, nobody would die for an evil person, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 and verse 8. So God's love reaches a new revelation in such a way as we shall see a little later on that John said we would not even know what love was until we'd seen it in Christ. And so when he says, love as I have loved you, he says, if my love is that I am willing to give my life and lay it down for you, then you ought also to lay it down for one another. Amen. It takes on a new meaning, a new dimension. But it's not just that. It also takes on a new power. That's what is so significant about New Testament Christianity. It's not following a form, a pattern, a doctrine, a structure, a set of rules, obligations, or even a law. Our law is the royal law of love. That royal law of liberty in which Christ's love is released into our hearts and we experience his love, first of all, for our, to ourselves, and then that love through us to other people. There is a power here. It's the power that is the motivating force and influence of our lives. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, love, the spirit of love, takes possession of our hearts. And this love, I think, was very particularly seen in the Christian church in the very early years. I'm not saying it doesn't exist today. All right? We see God's love operating today, but I think it does not characterize the Christian church today in the way that it should. Okay? That's why I'm preaching this message. Here we get back to this centrality and begin to show the world that we really are Christ's disciples. And so often, our lives and, uh, and certainly the image that we have, and I know sometimes this is the lies of the enemy who spreads lies about us through the media and so on, but we needn't give him so much ammunition sometimes. Christian churches and Christian people have a reputation of being the most negative, destructive, critical, judgmental, people on the planet. We're not known for our love and our grace. We're known for our snobbery, our pride, our prejudice, and our judgmentalism. And the way we treat one another, my God, my God, uh, we have some need here today for a fresh move of the Spirit. And I don't mean to be exclusive, but the first three centuries of the Christian church seem to me to be particularly characterized by love. And those 300 years 
I think were in many ways the most glorious years of the Christian church until things started to go wrong. Around about the time of Constantine, this Roman emperor who said, you can't beat the Christians, join them. And the Christians rejoiced when the Roman emperor, well, he became the emperor anyway, converted to Christianity, apparently. And so Christianity became a legal religion. It was suddenly legal to be a Christian, whereas before it was illegal. You were open to persecution and arrest and punishment at any particular time, at any whim of any local leader. But with Constantine, he said, okay, it became legal. And after, afterwards, it became the official religion of the empire, almost to the point of being the required belief. It was almost mandatory to be a Christian. No longer did you have to have a personal relationship with Christ. You were born into a Christian empire. And that's where things went wrong. Out of that comes the violence and the coercion and murders and killing and, and all kinds of stuff happening in the name of Jesus because church and state got so mixed together. Thank God that in recent days, more and more believers are understanding how it Important it is to be in personal relationship with Christ and building community together, not being born into a Christian nation, but being born again into the kingdom of God and then Christianizing our nation and letting them know about Jesus Christ. But anyway, the first 300 years were glorious years. There were also years of great persecution. And in those days, as it is in these days, so many lies were being spoken about Christians I mean, they were damnable lies. I mean, let me give you one of them. They said, watch out for those Christians. They're cannibals. When they have their secret meetings, they're feasting on flesh. And they completely misunderstood the communion service. For Jesus, this is my body. This is my blood. They are blood-drinking, vampire, flesh-eating people. Stay away from them. And they had many, many other slanders. Another big slander was, oh, they're unbelieving atheists. Have nothing to do with those Christians. They're atheists. How could a Christian who believes in the one true God and the only Son of God whom was sent into this world, how can we be called atheists? Well, back in the day, there was a developing cult of worship of the Roman emperor. Not only was he given supreme powers of lordship over every per person's life, every area of their lives. And when Christians said, no, Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord, it was revolutionary talk. But how, how could they be called atheists? Well, you see, the Christians said, we're not going to bow the knee to Caesar. We're not going to offer sacrifices to Caesar. We're not going to acknowledge Caesar's divinity. We, but there is only one God, and we're going to worship him. So they said, you're not worshiping God, the emperor, therefore, you're an atheist. And they'd be arrested and charged and killed, put to death for being atheists. And one old man was arrested and, and brought to trial, and, and he was just about to be thrown to the lions. And they said, old man, we're going to give you one more chance. If you say, away with the atheists, you will be rescued from this death sentence. He was a man full of faith. He said, Jesus Christ has, has been my Lord and has, has looked after me these 84 years. I'm not going to deny him now. They said, well, say away with the atheists. 
So he looked at the pagan crowd who were baying for his blood there in the amphitheater, and he waved at them. He said, yes, away with you atheists. And with that, they threw him to his death. So we aren't, we aren't blood-sucking, flesh-eating, blood-drinking cannibals. Neither are we atheists. And those lies were spoken, just like today. So many lies are spoken against the Christian church. But as I say again, let's not give them any more ammunition. Let it, let it be a lie. Don't let it be the truth. You know, you Christians, you're judgmental. You're, 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 you're intolerant. And you're, you're, you're prejudiced. And you think you're better than everybody else. Let that not ever be true of us. We know who we are. We came. We know where we came from. We know that it's only by the grace of God and we should be the most loving and the most gracious of all people. So what did the Christians do in those early centuries? Well, God raised up a group of people, century after century, who were known as the apologists. Not because they apologized for their faith, but the word apology means defense. They gave a defense. And one of these apologists in the second and early third century was the name of a man by the name of Tertullian. And he gave a very eloquent defense of the Christian faith. And he would record all the accusations that were made against Christians. And showed how, ridiculously, how ridiculous they were and how untrue. But in this, one of these um, writings of his, he records what a Roman ruler had said about the Christians. Having slagged them off and criticized them and, and said all these horrible things. He said, but there's one thing you can say. Look how they love one another. Let me read you Tertullian's own words. He quoted one of the pagans as saying of the Christians, see how they love one another. Look, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves hate each other. And how are they ready to die for each other? For they themselves are readier to kill each other. So the evidence of the love that Jesus says that will distinguish us from the rest of the world is a love that is willing to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3 talks about this. 1 John 3 verses 16 to 17 and here again is John, same author of the fourth gospel, who recorded the words of Jesus in John 13, we've just read. And writing this now is many decades later, but he still hasn't moved from love. He heard the teaching of love, and he held on to it, and it shaped his life. And now an aged apostle writing to the believers of that generation a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's the fruit of these decades of reflection from this mature, perfected, refined, holy disciple of Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Look how he's developed this in his thinking. He's saying, we would not even know what love was if Jesus had not come and demonstrated 
the true agape love of God. The love that is so other-orientated that not even Jesus considered his life precious to him. Freely gave it up for us all. The love of God who didn't consider his only son so precious as to withhold him as a gift from the world, but freely gave him up for us all. We wouldn't even know what love is if it wasn't for Christ. And that sounds like exaggerated talk today because everybody's talking about love. There's even a song, isn't it? I nearly sang it, but then I caught my wife's eye, which was saying, please, don't sing, spare them. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And everybody knows that love is important. But we often come short of a full Christian understanding of what love is. Love is often, in the end, quite selfish. And our motivation, often when we think we're being loving and doing a favor for somebody, we're actually doing a favor for ourselves. This happened to me yesterday. And, um, you know, I, I've been suffering from a, a kind of fatigue and I'm feeling much better. Keep praying for me, please, because I've got a lot of years in me yet and I need to get some real double supernatural end-time anointing strength back into my body. Katika jinala yesu. Amen. So one of the things is, amen, one of the things is, I'm, I'm 60 soon, there's nothing to do with it, of course, um, <laughs> is that, um, you know, I, I can sit, if I'm not careful, all day, morning, noon, and night, sitting at, at desk, talking to people, and not getting involved in a lot of physical exercise. So I'm actually going for good, strong, brisk walks. Hallelujah. And so along comes Saturday, Amanda's away ministering, and so the dogs are there, I'm there, I need a walk. So I said, dogs, you're taking me for a walk. <laughs> one on one leash, another on the other leash. Now, dogs need exercise. Amen? All right. So that was a ministry unto the dogs. Yes? Amen? You can see that. Okay, walk with me here. Walk with me. All right. But I tell you the honest truth. I wasn't taking the dogs for a walk. I was taking me for a walk. And the dogs were coming along. So I was meeting my need. And I'll tell you, there have been many Saturdays when I didn't take the dogs for a walk. Say, Amanda, I'm preparing my message. You'll have to take the dogs for the walk. Oh, I see. Same old excuse, Colin. Yes, I'm preparing my message. I'm a holy man of God. This is Saturday. The people are relying on me on Sunday. You take the dogs for a walk. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... The truth was, was that I was taking care of my needs in an important way. And I'm not going to go into depression over it. I'm not going to go to psychiatrists over this. It's mixed motives. The dogs benefited, I benefited, and everyone was happy. So, but can you see, even sometimes when we really think that we're doing a favor for somebody else, actually, we're serving our own interests. Another big misnomer today is that love is a feeling. Love is in the, love is in the air. That song. <laughs> love is in the air. I feel it everywhere. <laughs> what is that? Love is in the air. I feel it everywhere. What is that? Now, there are often beautiful feelings associated with various forms of love, particularly romantic love. But I have good authority to tell you that when Jesus died on the cross, it was physically impossible for him to have one good feeling in his body. Which is the greatest act of all. Jesus 
chose to love and chose to lay down his life, and it doesn't feel good. It is painful. So love isn't feeling first. Neither is it serving. It is whatever we feel, and often there are good feelings with it or associated with it, but it's about laying down your life to meet the needs of other people, putting other people's needs above yourself. And so John says, we're still in 1 John 3, verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Then he goes on to say, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down our lives for the brothers. He's going right back to John 13. Then he gives a concrete example because, you know, love is practical and concrete, isn't it? He says in verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so it's about laying down our lives and doing what Jesus did. John 13 begins with the statement that having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. And then he demonstrates by washing their feet. And he says, what I've done, you ought to also go and do. And then climaxes with this new commandment. And that's how the early church operated. You know, as Pentecostals and Charismatics, we love to emphasize the power of the early church. Silver and gold have I none. But such that I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Power. Have you ever noticed a Pentecostal preacher? They never say power. They say power. Because <laughs> we know what we're talking about. Power. Holy Spirit anointing or, or preaching, proclamation. And the proclamation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation, with signs and wonders following to demonstrate that God's not dead, Jesus is not dead, He's alive, He's real, and He can intervene in people's lives. That's absolutely central to the early church's message and practice, but we mustn't forget that all of that is valueless unless it also is with love. Before the great commission, go and make disciples, comes the great command, love one another as I have loved you. And so the early church flourished because of their love. They broke every barrier because of their love. They overcame and brought an empire to its knees within 300 years because of the power of love. Let's do it again. Amen. Let's have an amen. I'm going to give you another chance. Let's do it again. Amen. amen. Now, in the second century, um, one of the apologists by the name of Justin Martyr, who was, as his name suggests, martyred for his faith, he describes this in these terms. He said, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else. Interesting. Second century, <laughs> things haven't changed very much. We think materialism, love of money, 
acquisition of wealth, treading on people to get to the top, all of that's a modern phenomenon. It's all to do with Margaret Thatcher or, or, or something. It goes way back into human nature. And he said, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, I still believe that materialistic spirit is too much alive in us as 21st century believers. Why is it that so few give so little of their time to serve God, to make disciples, to win disciples, to serve Jesus and pay the price out there in the marketplace? It's because they are too busy trying to get rich. Amen? Now, you say, wait, wait, wait a bit. That's very unfair. You shouldn't say that because we've got mortgages to pay, we've got rent to pay, we've got food uh, you know, to buy. I know that. But even more than me, God knows that. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Do not be like the pagans who chase after these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and he will provide what you need. There's that spirit of acquisition and fear. We've got to believe God. If you're on a tight spot financially, uh, as well as going to one from our business fellowship and finding out if what mistakes you've made in the handling of money, if that is the case, as well as that, put your faith in God. Trust God. Get back to the Bible. Get back to the presence of God. And I think the men in particular... Always use this as an excuse. I'm involved in cell work. I can't involve in. I'm busy. I'm a breadwinner. Well, I'll tell you what. We all need to uh, trust God more. So let me carry on with Justin March. He said, we used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else. Now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refused to associate with people from another race or country. That sounds like modern racist Britain, doesn't it? Nothing's changed. He says, now because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. What a testimony. What a testimony. Clement, one of the other early church fathers, describes a person who's come to know God. So he says, okay, this is a person who's come to know God. Let's describe him. He says, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. What? We're too busy believing God for prosperity even to think about the needs of other people. And Clement says, look, if it comes to it, uh, uh, somebody who knows God is prepared to go without to see his brother have his needs met. And, and if he says, do you know what? I can bear poverty better than he can, so I give you everything. I'm going to trust God. I give you everything. I'm going to trust God. Wow. That's a definition of somebody who knows God in the early church. Then Clement goes on to say, he likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he doesn't complain. Amazing, isn't it? Love is considering somebody else's needs and problems and pain more important 
than your own needs and problems and pain. And this began to get the notice, catch the attention of the pagans, especially in the third century, when a massive plague swept across the Roman world. It devastated the Roman world. And the Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick during that plague. And they did so at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. While the pagans were throwing out into the street infected members of their own family who were still alive before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. And this, they began to notice this. They said, what is it with these Christians? Nobody behaves like that. Everybody's out for themselves. But not those Christians. Something's happened. Yes, Christ has come. Christ has died. And Christ is risen again. That's what's happened. Now, it wasn't just, of course, the love of believers for fellow believers. Yeah, it begins with the household of faith. Jesus specifies love one another. And that's, but that's just a starting point. That's the nursery school. You love your brothers and sisters. Then you go on to primary school, when you learn to love people who don't like you so much. And you really graduate to university when you start to learn to love those who hate you and persecute you and are out to get you. So the love of the early Christians wasn't limited simply to the fellow believers. The Christians began to get known as those who would help anybody, especially the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the orphans, the elderly, and the sick. There was no social security in those days. And they were specialists at helping shipwrecked people. If you think about it, the Mediterranean and all the ships, many, many shipwrecks. And so what would happen is when a ship was striking the shore and breaking into pieces and people were drowning, people would rush out and, and, and help themselves to the possessions of those people who, who'd lost everything. But the Christians help rescue people, help preserve the goods, bring it to the shore and say, okay, here's your stuff. And they were well known for that. And even their persecutors, they lived in such a way as to love those who hated them. Matthew 5, verses 43 and onwards, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Be like God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? 
Do not even the tax collectors do that? Tax collectors here was a euphemism for really a real bad sinner. I don't think we should use the same thing today to say all tax collectors are sinners. Though sometimes we're quite tempted to think that way. So it isn't about tax collecting, it's about real out and out, rabid, pagan, selfish, money grabbing people. He said, even they do that. They're nice to their friends. Then verse 48, he said, if you do this, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. John Wesley preached on a topic which he called the perfection of love. And I think his teaching has been exaggerated to suggest that he believed that it was possible to live sinlessly perfect. That is our potential in Christ, but if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. Now watch it, because there are people creeping around the churches these days, teaching a form of sinless perfection and getting people into bondage. One of the people even confronted George Vaux, and George Vaux said, you know, I've struggled with pornography in my life, and rebuked him. George Vaux, a man who served God all these years, and said, you shouldn't say that. You're putting people into bondage. You should, you should be living sinlessly perfect, like I am. <laughs> I spoke to the lady afterwards. Afterwards, she wasn't very perfect, I can tell you, by the time I'd finished with her. But there is a perfection. It's the perfection of love. Love perfects you. Love shapes you. Love makes you happy. And love gets you noticed. And the world, whatever else they might, they might say about us, let them have reason to say, reason never to be able to ignore the fact that we are the best lovers on this planet. And in that, in that, we'll be clearly distinguished as disciples of Jesus and sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, who is the God who is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. It's not a verb. It's a noun. God is love. If we say we're walking with God and have not love, something has to change. I wonder if there is an Apostle John here today. One person. Or even a group of people. Who will hear this and say, I'm going to take this. I'm going to run with this. I'm going to make this. The very center of my life's purpose to be such a lover of God so full of God's love such a clear example and demonstration of God's love to others and if that catches on and we become known as a Kensington Temple community of people who really love not in word only but in deed and in truth and we lay our lives down for one another and we love and serve our society, our community, and even the way we speak about those who persecute us, 
And there's not that much persecution really to speak of. There's a, there's a lot of ridicule, but persecution hasn't really happened yet. But should it happen, love is always the answer. Stronger than death and conquers the grave. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. Thank you.